1: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Sinn Féin tables a motion to tackle waiting times for spinal surgeries. We speak to the mother of 10-year-old Kylie Ann Stewart, who's been left waiting years for an urgent operation. In
2: 2018, my daughter's back was bad. And as the years pass on, every year you see how much more it has come out. You just feel like you're hitting a, a wall all the time.
1: Dr. Umar al-Qadri joins us in studio to talk about his assault in Dublin last week and the charges he's, changes he's making around security. And the United States pushes for a temporary halt in fighting in Gaza using the word ceasefire for the first time. In 2017, a report by the Ombudsman for Children said long waiting times for spinal surgeries constituted a denial of the rights of young people. It said no child should have to wait for surgery for more than four months. The Minister of Health at the time committed to this target. Since then, the number of children waiting for orthopaedic surgeries has grown and now stands at 327, with three-quarters of those waiting longer than four months. Today, as Sinn Féin tabled a motion in the Dáil to address the issue, one of those children was in the chamber. Ten-year-old kylie Ann Stewart has been waiting five years for a crucial operation on her spine. Earlier, Kira Doherty spoke to her mother about the agonising wait for treatment.
2: So Kellyanne was born with spina bifida hydrocephalus. So spina bifida, if you you imagine part of the spine is missing, it didn't form. So then the spine then starts to protrude as she grows. And so the bone is pushing out. So it's like basically bone is coming through her skin. And in 2018, we were told that she required a caifectomy. And um, we've been on a waiting list since. We've had two scheduled surgeries in, not last year, the year before. Um, both cancelled last minute and we are still awaiting a date.
3: When those operations are cancelled, what reasons do they give you?
2: So they just ring and say, it's very unfortunate, but we need to cancel it. We don't have the nurses to care for her after she, after her surgery. Um, so we'll send you out a new date and the second time probably we were told that um, the surgeon was no longer dealing with complex surgeries so then we had to wait then to a new surgeon was appointed to Kylie Anne, and that's what have been when we transferred then across to Crumlin. What is it like as a family
3: for yourself and for Kylie Ann when they do cancel those operations?
2: Heartbreaking because now, in 2018, my daughter's back was bad and as the years pass on, every year you see how much more it has come out and how much her spine is protruding in her back and you see the skin break down time after time and you worry every time is she going to get an infection? Sepsis is always in the back of your head. It's just, you live in fear. Like I remember someone saying to me about COVID and I says, my life every day is fear. I says, so no, I don't fear COVID because when I I watch my daughter every day, I fear that she's going to get an infection if her skin breaks down. So this chair that she has here, she, she cannot use that when she comes in from school. She has to come out of it. That is only for when we're out in a public place or when she's at school. Because the longer she's in the chair, the more friction she can cause to her back.
3: Over the course of the six years, how has Kylie-Anne's condition changed?
2: So, um, Kylie-Anne now struggles at school with writing, because she suffers a lot of pain from here down into her arms she has lost lung capacity and we were actually very shocked to know this like
3: What was the curvature in her spine a couple of years ago?
2: Um, so it probably would have started off like over 50 in February we would have had her scan at her normal spine bifida clinic and she was a curve of 102 and we had a scan in November and she was at 138. So she has like a cushion on her chair, but like when I, if I removed her from the chair, you can see the indent on the seat that she sits on every day. Like that's how sharp.
3: Will the delay that you've experienced and kylie experienced, will that make the surgery more complicated?
2: kylie surgery is more complicated um, than if it had been done when she required it back in 2018.
3: Despite, Catherine, the deterioration that you have seen in Kellyanne's condition, you still have no date for surgery?
2: That's correct, yeah. You just feel like you're hitting a, a wall all the time. So you do, so... Um, I just hope that after today that these TDs give us the backing we need because if we get that motion passed, it will give us more powers to fight for our children. And hopefully people will listen to us then.
3: Do you feel you're not being listened to?
2: All the time. I just feel like you're hitting a wall all the time. You're continuously fighting.
3: And I'm so conscious that Kailian is here beside you. And Kailian isn't going to speak, but she has joined you for this uh, interview. She's very conscious clearly, of what is going on, and it must be taking its toll on her, too.
2: Um, mentally, Kelly has a lot to deal with. Um, first of all, she, she has a hard life to begin. She has to deal with being in a chair every day, and she goes through all those feelings. And this is just another added problem. Like, if you had surgery, you wouldn't be dealing with that. Kelly has often, she went through different phases in life, right from not realising there was anything wrong with me, right up then until she realised everybody around me is running about, why am I not walking? And I remember, and I always say this, she says to me, Mom, when I'm five, do you think I will be able to walk? And I says, Kelly, God made you special, you'll never walk, you'll just use this chair. And um, it took a full year, I'd say, before she came out of that phase. So, like, this big surgery that she's waiting on is just another added problem that you just don't need. At 10 years of age. At 10 years of age.
3: Could you get to the point where Kylie Ann's condition becomes inoperable?
2: We could, yeah. Like, our, our surgeon told us when we saw him that he wouldn't want to see her even another 10 degrees. And that was, like, before Christmas. So, like, as every week passes, and we'd be emailing and emailing and emailing, and, but still no date.
3: You're joining the protest today. What is your message to politicians?
2: I want just to look at my daughter, the way we look at her, love her the way we love her and give her the quality of life that she deserves and every child like her. That is my message to every politician that has a given a vote in that dial today. Just give them the quality of life that you'd want for your own child, your own grandchild. If you have a heart at all, just please listen to us. Thank you,
1: Catherine Stewart and her daughter Kylie, and they're speaking to Ciara Doherty a little bit earlier. Well, joining me to discuss this are Fianna Fáil Senator and Shannon Spokesperson on Health Lorraine Clifford Lee, Sinn Féin TD and Party Spokesperson on Health David Cullenan, the Co-Leader of Spina Bifida and Hydrocephalus Pediatric Advocacy Group Una Keatley, and by Paul Cullen, Health Editor with the Irish Times. And we requested Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly to join us on the programme tonight, but he was not available. Um, I want to come to you first then, uh, Lorraine Clifford-Lee, on this. It struck me there, as Catherine said, she said many things and she spoke of her heartache. I think anyone watching that would say it's a heart-wrenching piece Mm -hmm. to see the emotion um, on, on little Kylie-Anne's face as she, she sat through this, as her mother explained their situation. But Catherine said, we're not being listened to, we're hitting a wall all the time, and it's not just the daily fear of infection brought on by delays, but also the fear that her condition will be completely inoperable. What are you saying to her when she says, we're not being listened to?
4: I think you're right. It was a very harrowing interview and I think Catherine gave a very good account of the situation and I've heard that account from many other parents over the years and these children and their families have been failed by the state over the years and the situation that many of them have been left in is inhumane. I can't describe it in any other terms Um, but I think Minister Donnelly is listening to the the parents, he is listening to the advocacy groups, he has met with some of them. I know the invitation is there to meet with other advocacy groups because he is trying to to improve this situation. And is progress being made? Progress is being made insofar as there's extra resources gone into the system, a record number of surgeries have taken place. it's had a negligible, a negligible in, impact on the, the waiting list, however, because there has been an increase of 40% on the referrals to the waiting lists. Mm. I'm just thinking um,
1: about what Catherine had to say there, that, you know, she had two cancellations in 2022. Mm-hmm. At that point, she'd already been waiting for four years.
4: Yeah. And since then, um, 19 million was put into the system to clear the waiting lists, and um, 200 extra healthcare professionals have been dedicated specifically to this matter. A new theatre was opened in Temple Street and MRI facilities put into... So what's, Hospital. Ha, what's, going what's going wrong? What's going wrong, and Minister Donnelly referred to it in the Dáil earlier on, the 19 million that was allocated to Children's Health Ireland to clear the waiting mm-hmm. list and it was taken outside the budgetary process. Um, And it hasn't had the impact. So he has actually called the HSE audit team. He has called the HSE audit team into CHI to to figure out what happened and to actually map that 19 million back onto the services because something has happened in the system. And it's not from the lack of government resources and it's not from the lack of willingness and understanding on behalf of the minister and action on behalf of the minister. That
1: that, that amount of money, 19 million euro, because that's what Children's Health Ireland said, You know, Mm -hmm. if you if you Give €19 million, yeah. Euro, we will see the waiting list down to a maximum of four months per child Absolutely. by the end of this year. and that was provided by That the money government. was provided, but it went into what, a black hole?
4: Well, we don't know exactly. I don't think it, it completely went into a black hole, but it's clear that it hasn't had the impact, and we want to find out why that hasn't had the impact. But can I say as well, apart from that, a dedicated unit has been set up within Children's Health Ireland. Uh, that's international best practice it's based right. on. There's a clinical lead. He's a recruiting the, a team he just started in January. So a lot has been done, but that doesn't uh, impact on on the harrowing story we heard there this evening from Catherine.
1: And I'm thinking about what the Ombudsman for Children, Niall Muldoon, had to say, because he was the person who spoke out about this, saying this is a basic children's right. And on foot of that, it was Simon Harris who said in 2017, Okay. yeah, four months is the max time that a child will have to wait for spinal surgery in this country. Now, he's calling on the government to honour its commitment that it made seven years ago.
4: Will well, the government do that? I, I can only talk about the government that has been in place for the past three and a half years, and Minister Donnelly has been the minister that has actually uh, done something to address this issue. It's been an ongoing issue. It's been a catastrophic failure uh, from start to finish, I mean, really. And like he, he stepped
1: uh, into that job quite a while ago when these problems absolutely, were ongoing and, and, and people like Catherine and her daughter, were yeah. highlighting this story.
4: Absolutely, and he has delivered an awful lot of resources and put together the system. But can I say there has been an increase in the population. There's been an increase of 40% in the referrals into... How does to that the... change,
1: cancelled surgery from 2022, that we don't have a new date on in the case of of Catherine. I I
4: don't know exactly what is the issue there, but there has been a record increase in spinal surgeries in 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 the system. I'd like to bring you in at this point. Just on the
5: referrals, we're looking at a a 40% increase and we're looking at years that we had COVID where you were told there was no appointments happening. We have an increase in population. We have the highest rate of spine bifida in the world. It's not rocket science that we get an increase in referrals when you look at COVID years when there was no appointments happening. A fifth theatre opened, indeed it did in Temple Street. And what happened? Fourth, The fourth theatre has been closed for renovations. We're still at four theatres, right? Minister Donald also made the commitment in February 2022 that no child would wait longer than four months for Spine Bifida. The new spinal unit, where is it? There's no phone number. There's no location. It exists in the third realm. Parents can't phone that unit. There's no one. Appointed I can't phone January. that. I can't phone in, that. He
4: was appointed in January and he's assembling a team. And I yeah, but it's
5: not established. It's not established. Don't yeah. say it's he established. He was appointed.
4: The, the unit no, was come on a, now. This, the, no, the parents the unit deserve was the established not in January. The parents are given this bluff, right? It's okay. not bluff. A team is being recruited. Recruited.
5: It's not available. I cannot ring that in the morning and say, hello, spinal unit. You know, I'm ringing, I'm ringing. It's like the Holy Spirit. Yes. In it. it only exists in imagination. It's, it's not no, I, I think that's disingenuous. No, no, that is absolutely disingenuous. and up nothing, running. Nothing, because you've obviously nothing, been strongly nothing. We are being given over an and over group. commitments that have not been honoured. Bernard Gloucester met us in September 2023 and advised that there would be nine spinal liaison officers set up in this state, one for each CHO area to help us navigate this mess of services that our children are in. And again, there's no phone number. And so wh- what
1: reason were you given as to why those officers are not in
5: place? Like, what's the excuse? The National Patient Safety Office have yet to respond to us on why those numbers aren't there.
1: OK, um, David Conan, I want to bring you in at this point because uh, Sinn Féin brought forward a motion around this, around a task force being established to look into it, to reduce waiting times. What are, are you doing or promising in that motion that the government isn't already committing to but failing to deliver on?
6: Well, I think that all of those parents and children that were outside the door today and in the public gallery have had a belly full of promises and politicians and what they want is action. I I met kylie Ann and her mum. She was one of 20 children that were in the public gallery today listening to the debate. I personally have a very low tolerance threshold for children in pain and I think all of us do and we want more to be done. I I find it very heartbreaking, I find it distressing. I listen to all of the parents, all of the children tell their stories and they are really heartbroken that promises have been made time and again and then they've been let down. So go back to the promise that Simon Harris made seven years ago, that no child would wait longer than uh, four months. That didn't obviously happen and hasn't materialized and then minister donnelly and i was astounded today with his contribution he said that he signed off on 19 million euro which he did we welcomed that at the time campaign groups welcomed it because obviously we want more investment more capacity and then he told us today in the doll that he could not say for certainty that all of the money was spent for the purposes of which it was intended he was told that uh, the basis for the 19 million euro was that he was given a commitment from Children's Health Ireland that if that money was committed, that no child would have to wait longer than four That
1: hours. was the magic number.
6: That was the magic number. Today, we have 327 children with scoliosis on waiting lists. That's higher mm. than when Simon Harris made the promise in 2017. So there is an awful lot of spin here in relation to numbers because we had different numbers in terms of waiting lists coming from different ministers. The bottom line is in what you heard in your package earlier kylie Ann is waiting five years. And it isn't just because you're asking what needs to be done. The reason why that the advocate groups and parents want a task force is because they are so disillusioned with all of these broken promises and a lack of accountability. If I can make this point, if we have a Minister for Health that over the last two years wasn't ensuring that the €19 million Euro was spent for the right purposes and ensuring that the target that was set was met, is it no wonder that parents then are so mistrustful of the system. There is the, task has, the task
1: force is, force is being set up. We, we've heard no, this. no, there's it no is, task force is in place at the moment. No, it isn't in it place is at the moment. It's okay, okay. a promise. So, 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 it's so it's the government, so government task force is being biased and what Sinn Féin is doing is saying, right, we'll get to work on that immediately.
6: I think Lorraine needs to better understand what's happening here with respect to it. There is no task force currently set up. What we were it seeking in the motion today was for a task force that has real teeth that the parents and advocate groups would be uh, a, a central part of that with clinicians, and then we move away from all of these false promises and the lack of accountability. And that is. Let's actually bring already. a level of transparency okay. to this issue. It certainly yeah. is not.
1: It is. Paul uh, Cullen, to bring you in on this because you've been writing extensively um, about it. What is actually is there a, sh- a shortage of senior surgeons who can do complex surgeries, or what is going on here that we are seeing these years-long waiting lists uh, for for surgery for children, which will be life-altering for them?
7: Yeah, sure. And we're we asking, well, why are we talking about this again? We don't want to be. I don't think anybody wants this, and nobody wants to witness that um, harrowing interview and, and see this happen maybe in a year's time. I think the particular case that you featured there is, is um, a combination of two issues. One is the chronic issue. Yeah. Um, well, if, even if you go wider in the health service, you, we, we haven't managed to deal with, with waiting lists generally, OK? So this is a specific cohort, and it's a very um, heartrending and harrowing particular uh, situations that uh, these children find, find themselves in. Um, but also there is a particular situation in, in since last September in Temple Street where the one surgeon who is able to do the most complex surger- surgeries on children uh, is off the pitch effectively. So tell us about the impact time. of that. On well, the I was wondering that. about that it, from the figures, um, surgeries are, are still co- proceeding at Temple Street, but not complex ones. So, no matter how much we talk about task forces and so on, um, we don't have an immediate solution to the most complex and most glaring um, and, um, delays in the system. But we so when we heard
1: reports over the weekend we just about those yeah. waiting lists coming down. Are you
7: going to do them, David? That
1: was not, that was not in relation to complex surgeries. That was all surgical no. procedures. Yeah, there's a no. bit of a
6: blizzard of figures. No, going. no but I do have do. To, no, sorry, I have to just come back to what Paul yeah. said there because it isn't fair. There are some children who are able to access private health care and I want all children to have equal access to that care. So it is the case that in some clinics in Ireland, private clinics, they can provide some of these surgeries. None of the complex. I spoke to. I spoke, the complex, to ones, I spoke to. part of the I spoke system. to the former head of the HSE, who at the time when Simon Harris was the minister for health. Uh, when that commitment was given, had put in place a plan. And part of that plan was to offer treatment abroad for those children who could avail okay, of it. So OK, that's treatment but abroad, yeah. but that's different yeah, to treatment in no, private clinics. I know, but are the my senior my clinicians but there? I but mean, are but if my you going to so David, my David point. is leading us to on my, that but point. My, but, my, but my point is that that was then discontinued long before okay, COVID. but are there so the, private
1: hospitals that can carry out this specialised surgery?
6: Well, there are children that can get some, some services, no, right, not, not all of that the services. Because
1: she, she's not, speaking not for not
6: families.
4: Not complex children. No,
6: no, there
5: is not. There is Like, we cannot avail. of uh, We cannot travel abroad because our children require ventures and different things like that. We can't bring them privately. But the, the point is, and in these figures, what's disgusting in these figures is, and what uh, government ministers are failing to report, is that all children, all complex surgery for children with spina bifida has ceased across CHI. CHI, Tempest Street have not performed spinal surgery on a child since 2022 and Crumlin have not performed one in since I think September 2023. You cannot deliberately alienate a whole cohort of, of children and say due to your disability, sorry not for you and oh we've come down 4%. What would happen in the morning if we said sorry, everyone in Cork, no treatment for you but we're going to bring down the figures everywhere. Mm-hmm. So do we, and-
1: need, do we need more uh, surgeons to be able to perform yes, these surgeries or there are other we've, issues we've that heard, are that again, prompting oh, the cancellation. We've heard to
5: in-source surgeons. We got that, that sound right from Minister John Lee in October. There, there's been no new surgeons. There's been no post advertised across CHI. And CHI, the ones who have mismanaged the care of our children, ha- are now query about the mismanagement of funds. We're expected to believe that they're going to manage a task force effectively. They will not. And we need to be listened to as Parents, this task force must be independent of CHI, it must be statutory, and it must be expert-led. Well, okay. I've I looked got, very closely. Can I get I've... you in on that? There are big mm. questions that need to be asked
1: then, really. I mean, not least, we talk about this 19 million euro, which was promised to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And clearly, you know, the Minister is not sure where that money has gone.
4: And that's why he has called the auditors in to actually find out, because that's a very serious situation. But why is that audit just he being prompted now? I mean, that, was that not in the Budget 22? As an extra, yes it was. Yes, yeah. an and it was provided and it was working. at that the point. System. But it's right. clear now that the, the, the it hasn't had the effect and the minister wants to find out exactly why.
1: But we've already heard and we've heard from Una that she they have been consistently pushing a lack of services. The fact that they're, you know, that the, um, these surgeries are not up being carried John Lee. out. So in, in June the problems have been there and been highlighted.
5: The money was given in February. We were all absolutely delighted. We thought this was going to bring things. By June, we actually saw that things were getting worse. We contacted Minister Johnley and we said, "There's a serious issue here. The funding has been given, and the children are in a worse state than they have ever been." And we wrote to him and we emailed him, and we never received a response. But and the task force, the task force is Una, being established. Sorry
4: the terms of reference are being put together, Um, stakeholder groups are being brought in, because the Minister wants to see progress. All right,
7: Paul. Well, the Minister convened a meeting yesterday with, with patient groups. There are at least five of them uh, he, and, with, and with your group and another group didn't go along if uh, you go and talk to the minister group. to be fair to him yeah, he can't be expected to but it was a section 39, 39 charity HSE
5: semi funded charity and I think anyone who stands up and supports the minister's position and says I'm an advocacy group is going to get a seat at the table and to be fair right the Scoliosis Advocacy Network got that ombudsman report done in 2017 we've been meeting with CHI since 2017 we're on the CHI family forum we've been on co-design boards he said himself the minister that the co Co-design boards haven't worked. We're not going to put another uh, rebranding of the co-design board okay, as a task well, that uh, is will you an independent. meet the
1: minister Una, or what's stopping you from the, meeting no, the minister? We, we
5: asked for an agenda. We said we had certain things we want to discuss, and could we get a commitment that they would be and that gave they but, that commitment. but you no, wouldn't, we and not. you wouldn't meet with
7: the other groups present in the room.
5: No, that's that's not. I have to
6: correspond. No, so no, no, no. But I think, think this all, I think this, this is all. I think this is all very. Is I think. think this is all very disingenuous. When we're talking here about groups to represent the vast, vast majority of those children who are waiting for care, there's a huge amount of mistrust. And in fact, I just have to challenge Paul and lots of what he said because the minister, first of all, can speak for himself. Paul doesn't have to speak for him. And I think there's He's a huge amount. Of, there's a huge amount well, of, he, of. I, spo- right, I, I If I can make my point. When I spoke to the former head of the HSC... Who was the head of the HSE in 2017 when that commitment was given? I asked him what, on what basis, was that pledge given that no child would wait longer than four months. He said it was, of course, to increase capacity, treatment abroad, and in fact, many children did get access okay. to treatment abroad. Can I abroad. ask you about treatment what, abroad? No, but many it was did. think that
1: was suggested, wasn't it? By, but if I can, by, but you're not allowing me to make the, the most important Minister. point,
6: Clare. When that option was given, the waiting list came down. Then that stopped. The waiting list went back up again.
1: The and option then for
6: families to travel abroad for surgery for some, it's not an option for all it's a, an option for some families because there are maybe some children who might be too sick Did the pandemic not intervening yeah. it was yeah. before the pandemic this was before the pandemic when that yeah. stopped and the point i made then about private healthcare is it's not just the surgery there's pre-operative care there's mm. post-operative care so, there's yeah. transitional care there's those options okay. for some children and we're not using the totality of healthcare infrastructure okay. and then to make it worse 19 million euro was given and we don't know if it was spent for the purposes of which it was intended. Okay. So and nobody can stand over that. W- not Paul, not Lorraine and not me. All uh, oh,
1: right. We'll have to await uh, the outcome of that audit um, and see that where that goes and whether we can get answers on on where that Uh, money was spent, but while all of this is happening, there's still hundreds of children waiting for surgery, so we do appreciate Catherine Stewart and uh, Kylie-Anne telling us their story today. We have to leave it there. My thanks to Una Keighley and to Paul Cullen. My other panellists are staying on with me. Coming up after the break, we speak to Dr Umar al-Qadri about his assault in Dublin last week. Welcome back. Last week, the chairperson of the Irish Muslim Council and Chief Imam, Dr. Umar Al Kadri, was hospitalized following a suspected hate crime attack. The incident happened in Tala last Thursday evening, and Garda investigations are ongoing. Dr. Al Kadri joins us now in studio alongside my panelists Lorraine Clipperd and David Colnan, who are still with me. You're very welcome to the programme, Dr. Al Kadri. Thank you. Um, this attack happened, as we say, less than a week ago.
0: How is your recovery going? Um, Thank God the recovery is going well. I mean, um, when I work on a laptop, for more than 10, 15 minutes, I get very tired. Mm -hmm. But that's part of, I think, you know, having had a concussion. But for the rest, I'm really, you know, happy that the swelling is gone. Uh, The first few days, the swelling was severe. I couldn't open my mouth. Brushing teeth was very difficult. Uh, Now it's much better, much easier. So every day passes, recovery uh, gets better. You know, it gets easier.
1: Within hours of your alleged assault in Tala last week, uh, you say you you experienced what was a deliberate uh, hate crime attack. That's how you described it
0: on social media. Why do you believe it was? Okay, first of all, uh, this word alleged, I'm sorry, I don't like it. I have been a victim of a crime. I've been a, a victim of an attack so that's not As in, alleged. while Garda investigations yeah. are ongoing, well, it's, investigations, it's an alleged hate crime in that regard. That's it is an alleged hate crime. R- we're speaking But to it's that. not an alleged attack. An attack did take place. So the hate crime is the part that needs to be investigated. So the Garda is currently investigating this. Um, if this was an attack on just me, you know, because for whatever reason, okay, that is fine. So many people get attacked. I'm not special, I'm an ordinary citizen of the country. I don't deserve the attention, but I don't think this was an attack, just random attack. I think this was a hate crime. Why? Because the people that attacked me, there is no other motive that I can see, particularly considering the current uh, rhetoric that is very prevalent Mm -hmm. online. Uh, I am very outspoken against extremism, against racism. I have been previously very outspoken against Islamist militants, against the the people that kill innocent people in the name of Islam, in the name of my faith. And if I were attacked by someone coming from that background, I, I would know. And at least that the people would, you know, have a Muslim identity. These people that attacked me, they didn't look Muslim. They didn't, they were, they looked like just, you know, ordinary white people. Yeah, so to to explain that just to to
1: our audience, um, you found yourself um, in Tala because you had agreed to officiate at a Muslim marriage blessing. Yes. Um, So um,
0: who first contacted you and did it all appear to be normal? Sure. So I was contacted, basically, the the phone line of the Islamic Centre gets forwarded to myself. If nobody picks up in the Islamic Centre, I pick the phone around two o'clock. And there was somebody with a very thick Irish accent in English asking, could the imam come down to do a wedding in the house? So I I asked, well, first of all, tell me, who are you? Where are you calling from? And he said, I'm half Irish, I'm half Pakistani. That puts me at ease. And he then said, I'm born in the country. So there are so many people born in Ireland, you know, so many Muslims I know that have a very, very thick Irish accent. Mm -hmm. Unless you see them, you wouldn't know that they're actually second generation migrants. So then I asked him, who, do you want, who are you getting married with? Who is the lady? And he said, she, he said uh, she's from Algeria. So I said, if you send me a message on WhatsApp, I'll send you the application form and then I will get the document prepared and I'll come for the, for the blessing. But why do you want it to, ha- to take place in the house? Why don't you come to the Islamic Center? Because most people, not all, but most people would come to the Islamic Center. So he said, Well, because we have family and we just want to do a small gathering at home, have the blessing at home. And that's fine. You know, we, we try to be as accommodating yeah. as and we so can. And so you agreed
1: on that basis to go to town? Exactly. But and when you arrived why.
0: there, all was not as it seemed. No, well, when I arrived there, the house, the address that I was given, there was only one car. There was no other car. So that I asked, like I thought to myself, if there was a blessing here, surely there would have been some guests. So I called the number and the person said, well, uh, reverse the car, come back to the beginning of the street. I'm standing outside in front of the house. So I thought Google has probably brought me to a wrong address. I reversed the car and I saw then this person waving at me uh, at the end of the street, parked the car, and I came out of the car and the rear of my car, went towards him, I greeted him, salamu Alaikum. And he said, Wa Alaikum salam. Now, obviously he was born, as he said, and he was half Irish, half Pakistani. So if he had an Irish accent like that, it's fine. Mm. The other person I saw um, looked very you know, different. He looked very Irish, looked, you know, and, and he had a hoodie on. And uh, then I looked towards my car and I just wanted to open the door so I could get the document. Uh, the marriage certificate with me. As soon as I looked towards the car, I just remember wanting to open the door. I don't remember anything after that. So they hit me, and when they hit me, I was knocked down. I felt unconscious. So I don't remember anything, except I woke up in the car, in my own car, and there were people around me. There was a lady, Irish lady, it was two Irish men, and they were talking to me. They were telling me, I was at- you were attacked and we've seen it, and we've called the guard, and we've called the ambulance. It took me 45 minutes. So by 9:30, the first message I sent was 9:30 p.m. from my phone to the uh, management. Uh, there's a group for the mosque mm-hmm. management. Some of our volunteers, and I said, "I'm here at this address, this location. I've been attacked. Please come." So uh, within 15 minutes, 20 minutes, there were five, six people from my community so who, who were you there. You received
1: lots of support, and people got you I, I think, I, to I, Connolly Hospital. I'm very and
0: in, in Blanchardstown
1: where you underwent um, a scan but um, luckily you have been released from hospital now and you are recovering at this point. Um, you've said that um, Muslim clerics and faith leaders will need to review their personal safety and not only that, that you believe security needs to be stepped up in mosques around the country.
4: What sort of Absolutely. measures
1: do you believe need to be introduced and is this as a direct result of what happened to you and the fear that is now in the community?
0: Look, there have been attacks on places of worship throughout Europe, on synagogues, on churches, on mosques. And there is a, there is a rise of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism throughout Europe. Ireland so far hasn't been affected by it. But the last year or two, it seems we Irish are not immune to it. We're not immune to radicalization. So in Ireland there is now this prevalence of this toxic, toxic rhetoric against migrants, against refugees, against Muslims that is so prevalent online that it's really shocking. And I think this is this is a consequence of that. The attack on me, this is what I believe. And of course we have to wait until the Garda come and conclude with the with the, with the investigation, and we will know for sure. But I I, I suspect it to be a chain of that uh, that that continuous. Uh, increase of uh, hatred in our society. And, and, and that is something that, uh, that needs to, we need to do something about it. And we need mosques. Of course, they need, to, in, uh, you know, they need to improve the security in terms of making sure they have CCTVs, working CCTVs, not just CCTVs, but actually that are working. They need to have some people within the mosque that are, can volunteer as security. Uh, And if imams are travelling somewhere, obviously they shouldn't be travelling alone. So these kind of measurements that are kind of precautions that they have to take now. And previously that we would not need, Mm. never imagined that we would have needed these in Ireland. But unfortunately, the truth is Ireland has changed. Okay,
1: Ireland has changed, Umar says. Uh, What do you you say to his story, um, to the attack that happened? And how concerned are you about it?
4: Well, firstly, I'd like to to strongly condemn the attack and to wish um, Dr. Al-Qadri the very best in his recovery. I know you must be really, really shocked and dismayed, really, that something like this happened. Um, And I know there's a live, ongoing investigation, so uh, I don't want to say too much about that other than the fact that people shouldn't uh, be attacked and feel threatened Mm -hmm. because of their religion, the color of their skin, where they come from. And I think it's a really shocking Uh, situation and I think he's very right in saying there's been a lot uh, lot of uh, toxic rhetoric um, on the national airwaves, on social media over the past number of months and I've seen the rise of it. I think we did think we were special in Ireland. I think we thought we got integration right and what the problems that other countries were facing, we wouldn't face it because we're a a, a country of immigrants and that we've gone to other countries and how could we ever hold it against anybody else? But I think this instance showed the real uh, urgency with uh, specific hate crime legislation. The government has been trying to progress that.
1: Would you agree with that, uh, David Cullinan, that hate crime legislation will go some way um, towards helping in these situations, helping to prosecute people?
6: Well, first of all, I'm so sorry, Umar, that you were the victim of an assault and an attack. And it certainly seems to bear the hallmarks of a hate crime. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see from the Garda investigation, but there certainly was an assault. We don't need new legislation to deal with that. That can be dealt with under the current legislation. Obviously, this was a clear assault. I want to see the perpetrators brought to justice. I am concerned about the rise of extremism in relation to immigration. We can see it online. We can see it in some of the social media platforms. I do believe that it is a very, very small percentage of the population. It's extremely small. We saw some very ugly protests outside Leinster house and elsewhere in recent times as well we've seen some protests that were peaceful on the issue of immigration we have people who are raising what I would see as reasonable mm-hmm. concerns in relation to immigration. Want debate, want discussion. I don't believe that the vast, vast majority of Irish people who are very fair-minded would have any truck whatsoever with people who would perpetrate mm-hmm. an assault like this. We need to send out a very clear message that it's wrong. Take a zero-tolerance approach. And like any crime perpetrated against any person, the people responsible mm-hmm. need to be brought to justice.
1: And yet, when you've come out and you've you've told your story. That's been questioned, hasn't it, on social media? Yes, yes. I, I just saw that in, in, in I, the last few days, that yeah. the reaction, while well, there's been you know, solidarity from many, and we know that there was actually a solidarity march that took place in Tala on Monday from the Lakela Anti-Racism Group, there have been others who've, who've questioned um, your story and what happened to you. How, how, how worried are you by that? Or what do you think Look, when you see that?
0: I, I think previously I heard about people, you know, questioning um, incidents and events, And obviously that kind of worries you as well. Like, you know, did these things really happen or not? So these conspiracy theories, you heard them about, you know, starting from the pandemic, the vaccine was supposed to have a chip in it. And this was like so prevalent and people believed in it. And now we have uh, people questioning the attack that took place on me, me as a victim knowing, Guardy was there, ambulance were there, there were Irish people there helping me. There were five, six people from my community there. I had a swollen face for the first three, four days. Uh, so I know it happened. Mm-hmm. I know it happened. So irrespective of whether somebody believes or not, and I think the Gardaí will obviously, their investigation, I look forward to it, that it concludes, and we will find out, uh, you know, why, why these people did what they did, what their motivation was.
1: All right, and we wish you well in your recovery. Thank you for joining you. us on the programme tonight. Um, coming up after the break, the US is to push for a temporary ceasefire. Do stay with us. Welcome back. The United States is to push for a temporary halt in fighting in Gaza using the word ceasefire for the first time. It's drafted a proposed resolution for the UN Security Council but had previously avoided using ceasefire during UN votes on the war. Our text calls for a temporary
8: ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable based on the formula of all hostages being released. Under current circumstances, a major ground offensive into Rafah should not proceed. Well,
1: earlier, the U.S. vetoed an Arab-backed U.N. resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. We're joined now down the line by Donika O'Bakon, professor of politics at DCU. Thanks for joining us on the programme tonight, Dunica. The U.S. as expected vetoed this uh, U.N. resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. It was an Algerian um, resolution. This was expected, wasn't it?
8: It was expected, it was depressingly predictable and familiar. This is the third time now that the U.S. has vetoed a resolution which otherwise would have passed, it it exercised its veto powers as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. The first time it did that was in October of last year, when 1,000 people had died uh, as a result of Israel's assault on Gaza. Now that figure is almost 30,000. So the cost in terms of human life uh, for those vetoes has been huge. Almost 30,000 people dead, most of those women and children, uh, almost 80,000 injured. And, and, of course, there's, there's the loss of life and limb. So this is this is something that the US had flagged in advance. And it shows, I think, the desperation of the other countries that they still pushed ahead. Uh, they wanted to make a stand on this issue, even though they knew the, the US would exercise its veto.
1: Of course, now what we have, which could be significant, uh, the US coming up with their own rival resolution. How meaningful is it? They are calling uh, for a temporary ceasefire. It's the first time that they've uttered those words in relation to what's happening in Gaza?
8: Well, there has been a lot of uh, speculation and interpretation about the use of the word ceasefire, but to be honest, it seems like uh, a mechanism by which the US is trying to demonstrate that it's it's in the UN, not simply as a destructive power blocking other people's initiatives, but it has a plan of its own. Whether it can get the agreement of the other uh, members of the UN Security Council is, is questionable, because this will be a wide-ranging package. Now the. The US has said that it's got a lot of time, that it will deliberate with other countries. But as we know, I mean, delay in Gaza means deaths, an average of 230 every day. So time is of the essence. But it's also, when they when they mention the word ceasefire, they say it will be a temporary ceasefire. And as soon as is practicable and all those kind of details about when the circumstances would allow for this temporary ceasefire, they still have to be fleshed out uh, by agreement with the other partners of the UN Security Council.
1: So we don't have a date for when this resolution will be brought before the UN Security Council, although we do have I suppose a pledge to to, to do something. Yeah, on this I mean, how will Israel view it? How will it be viewed internationally? You're saying all countries may not get on board. Is that because of T's and C's contained within?
8: Absolutely. I mean, it will be so the US... Uh, ambassador to the UN suggested today quite a wide ranging package and there may be items in it that won't find agreements amongst, for example, Arab states such as uh, Algeria which sponsored the motion uh, today. But I mean, I think it's still very important the fact that this Algerian motion today had the support of France of Korea, of Japan, of Switzerland, of Slovenia, of Malta. All those countries would be considered allies of the U.S. So the U.S. is really out in a limb here. And, you know, the question regarding whether the U.N., I'm mean, sorry, if, if the U.S. managed to get a motion passed, even calling for a temporary ceasefire. By the way, the U.S. ambassador also said that this draft resolution would call on Israel not to launch a ground offensive on Rafa. It's, it's not clear that Israel would abide. Uh, by any UN resolution, it's made it clear uh, over and over again that it sees itself as, you know, rhetorically abiding by international law, but de facto above international law. It's dismissed, uh, you know, the International Court of Justice. It, dim- it dismisses UN resolutions. So it's not clear, uh, you know, who would implement any UN resolution if it was passed.
1: All right. So at this point, um, we don't know. As I say, we're still waiting on a potential date for that. And then the outcome also um, is unclear as far as you're concerned, Danica. Um, There we'll have to leave it. My thanks to you, Danica, for bringing us up to date um, on that and the latest um, efforts around securing some sort of a, a temporary halt to what's happening um, in Gaza. There we'll have to leave it. My thanks to all our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.